0: Today we're starting a brand new series um, for the entire month of February called No Regrets. And um, as you see, the spelling's wrong, and um, some of you felt like we just messed up and let me know. And I was like, we know, okay, we're not that bad. So um, No Regrets, and this entire series we're going to be talking about relationships, uh, specifically romantic relationships. Uh, for those of us that are here that are in a romantic relationship, for those that are hoping to be in one One day, for those of us that are in a really good romantic relationship, for those of us that are not in a great romantic relationship, um, this is for you. We're going to be talking about how we in our relationships um, can have a relationship with no regrets, that we're proud of, that we are proud, and that we honor God with. The truths we talk about in this series, they can be adapted to any setting. They don't have to be just romantically. They can be how you interact with your friends and your family. But we are going to talk specifically about Romantic relationships throughout this series. Um, And so we're going to learn a little more about that. To give you some background on myself, if you don't know me, um, I met my wife in uh, 2010. Um, We met at a housewarming party that um, I was throwing at my brother, and my brother invited her college roommate to this party. Uh, we We had known her from our youth group days. My brother saw her and said, Hey, you should come to this. And she didn't want to come alone, so she begged her roommate, which was Erica to come with her, and she didn't want to come. She's like, I'd rather not, but fine. So she came. She said, all I'm going to do, though, is sit on the couch. I'm not talking to anybody. And she came, and uh, she had already met my brother before, and she was not impressed by him. Um, (laughs) And then when, that's my favorite thing to say when I tell this story. Um, And then I was walking down the steps, and she said, that when she saw me walk down the steps, she went, oh, that's Shane's, oh, Shane has a brother. But when I hear it, I hear, oh, Shane has a brother. That's what I hear. So I went, and I talked to her, and I got to know her a little bit, and then we, because um, she wasn't moving from that couch, so I went to her, and I saw her. I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to this girl. Started talking to her, and then um, it wasn't as smooth as just we started dating. We kind of started talking, then we weren't friends anymore, and then we started talking again, and then eventually we started dating. I believe it was June 12th that we started dating, um, and then less than six months of dating, we got engaged way too fast, okay? That's, you should not go that fast. And then we were only engaged for eight months, and then we got married August 6, 2011. Here's actually a picture of, uh, of us on our wedding day. Look at those little babies right there. So little. So um, so there. this was supposed to be an outdoor wedding, and some of you were there. It was not because it started pouring, like the most rain I've ever seen in my life. And it luckily started five minutes before we got married and not five minutes, or five minutes before the ceremony started and not five minutes after the ceremony was supposed to start because that would be way worse. Um, and uh, they actually did not tell my wife that we moved it inside. Um, she was in her bridal suite, and then um, they, they just saw it was about to rain, so they brought everything in. And she found out when she was walking down the aisle, and they turned right when the was go left. She's like, why are we going this way? It's like, uh, we had to change things. So she wasn't happy for a second, and then when she started walking down the aisle and saw how handsome I was, she just forgot all about it. <laughs> so this was a great day, August 6, 2011. Um, things went really well. And ever since that day, my wife and I have lived happily ever after after ever since that day besides the growing pains of living together that first year of marriage that was a little tricky besides that and besides like going from my single life or her single life where i got to see my friends whenever i wanted and she got to see her friends whenever she wanted besides like that weird adjustment of having to figure that part out besides that Um, besides Brooklyn coming, our first child and not having any sleep and a whole different life change and how to figure that out, that wasn't the best time of our marriage, but we figured that out. And besides having Savannah 18 months after Brooklyn, so my wife had nine months of breastfeeding, then nine months of being pregnant, her body was changing, and we were so exhausted, and we didn't know what to do, and two kids was really tricky. Besides that, it was happily ever after. And besides year five, when for no reason we fought about everything, I remember a fight that my wife and I had about, we talked about this week, about laundry. And it became a screaming match. And we had no clue why. We just did not get along in in year five. We don't know why. Besides that, it was happily ever after. Um, Besides, uh, before we launched Impact Church, I went a couple months without an income Besides that part, my wife felt a lot, a lot of pressure to provide for the family, and I felt a lot of guilt that I wasn't providing for my family, and I felt like that I was a failure as a husband and, and a father. Besides that, besides when we launched back Church, and it was the most stressful time that we've ever had, and I had to learn how to be a lead pastor, I'd never been one before, she had to learn how to be a lead bachelor's wife, she had never been one of those before, that weird adjustment, uh, besides going through a pandemic that um, I'm an extrovert and I need to talk to people constantly and I'm um, always doing that. And she was stuck in the house. She's an introvert who needs time away mainly from me. So besides that aspect of it, besides all that stuff, we've lived happily ever after. That's how we've been for 10 years. Most of us, we grow up with this idea of happily ever after where the prince fights for the princess, the song plays, and in, a minute, and in one hour and 30 minutes or a little less, They ride off in the sunset happily ever after. How we are taught about love and relationships, it actually forms two myths in us. A couple years ago, I read a book called Love, Dating, and Heartbreaks by Andy Stanley, and in it, he explored these two myths that I'm going to talk about today. And both of these myths are the undercurrent of a lot of our relationships. And when I start to say what these are, you're going to know right away, oh, yeah, that's not true. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that we shouldn't do that. No, no, yeah, for sure that's not true. But yet, a lot of our decisions and a lot of the way we look at our relationships and a lot of the way we act in our relationships are informed by these two myths. So myth number one is this, the right person myth. The right person myth. Uh, Let me tell you something that I hear constantly when I do marriage counseling, because whenever um, I'm going to be the officiant of of a couple when I'm going to marry them, we do premarital counseling. And I hear this all the time, and maybe you said this at one point in your life, but here's here's what I hear. I hear things like, well, I just knew that he was the one for me, or I just knew that she was the one for me. I just knew we were meant to be together. We're soulmates. I just knew it. We, that's who we are. It's the idea of everyone that right person, that one person that you're supposed to marry, that all of us have the one. You might have heard that. Let me, let me break down the idea of, of the one to you. The, the, the one... If you have the one, as in that's one person you're supposed to marry, and one person messes up the one, then it throws off everything for everybody. I mean, think of it this way. My wife's ex-boyfriend was a guy named Sam. I'm better than Sam in every way possible, okay? (laughs) And I hope he hears this. Um, But let's say, let's say my wife was supposed to marry Sam, okay? Let's say that was her one, but she has free will, she chose, and she made a mistake and married me instead. I, if she married me, I wasn't her one. That means I was supposed to marry some girl named Sally. Now, who does Sally end up marrying? Not her one. Who does Sam end up marrying? Not his one. And then we have kids, whoever Brooklyn, Savannah, Noah marry, that's not their one because they supposed not even supposed to be born because Erica wasn't my one. It throws off the whole thing. But we have this idea of the right person, the right person myth. And here's what the right person myth says. The right person will make everything right. The right person is going to make everything right. Once you find that right person, that one, that soulmate, then everything else will be perfect. We will live happily ever after. So once you have this myth in you, that one day that right person is going to show up to make everything right. And so if that's true, then what I do today before I find the right person doesn't matter. Because when I meet the right person, everything's going to be fine. So what I do today doesn't matter. I can be whoever I want to be today. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with today. I can have fun with whoever I want to have fun with today. I can create unhealthy habits today because I'm eventually going to meet the right person and the right person is going to make everything right. So what I do today doesn't matter because that right person is showing up one day. And if you have this myth, and you marry someone with the idea that the right person is going to make everything right, that the right person is going to fully satisfy you, that the right person is going to be easy to love, you're going to live happily ever after. When we have that, all of a sudden, if you're married, you know this, relationships get hard. So if we have that idea, then what starts to happen for a lot of us is we go, why is this so hard? It should be easier because it's the right person. Maybe I married the wrong right person. Maybe my right person is the next right person. That's the right person I should be marrying. Maybe I married the wrong one. It even goes deeper than, than, than that. It goes even deeper. We think when we meet the right person, not only will everything be right, but the right person will make you right. That all of your problems and all of your things that you're working with, that person will make you right. Once I meet the right person, I'm not going to struggle with porn anymore. I met the right person. They, they satisfy everything now. Once I meet the right person, all my insecurities will just go away. Because they're going to make me right. It's a myth. It's incorrect. But that myth fuels our relationship decisions, and it fuels what we do in our relationships without even realizing it. That's myth number one. Myth number two is this, the promise myth. The promise myth. Do you remember, if you're married, do you remember the vows that you, that you said at, at your wedding day? Maybe you wrote your own vows. Maybe you've, you've read over them and you've reviewed them. Or maybe um, you did some traditional vows and things like in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, um, things like that. I remember, oh, my wife and I was talking about this week with her. I thought I'd say this. Um, we have a saying, which I don't know if this is a healthy saying, by the way, you probably shouldn't do this, but if I do something that annoys her or she does something that annoys me, we'll say like, hey, for better, for worse, and the other person replies, worse. That's, that's our saying. So let me just give you an example. This never happens. But Let's say I ate chili one day, and I'm still a man child, and I think it's funny in bed to fart and put the blanket over her. Let's just say that happens. I will say for better or for worse, she goes much worse, 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 worse. That's what we do. Remember those vows that you that you kept? So all I say that to say pray for Erica, please. Okay. <laughs> she's she's a saint. Here's what the promise myth says. A promise replaces the need for preparation and practice. A promise replaces the need for preparation and practice. It's the idea that making that promise is what's most important. Not preparing for, to keep the promise, not practicing to keep the promise, but the promise itself is the most important. All your bad habits, all your selfishness, all of your past can be overcome because you made a promise, then you threw a party. That's what the promise myth says, that it's all about your promise. All those bad things in your past, they just magically go away once you say, I do, you make that promise. And your spouse's bad habits and bad things, they just magically go away because you said, I do. It's a myth. And you know this is a myth. And we don't apply this to anything else. We don't apply this to any other aspect. You wouldn't go with your education and be like, I promise I'm going to pass the test. I'm not going to prepare. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to practice anything, but I promise I'm going to pass the test. You wouldn't do that. You know that's silly. You wouldn't do that at work. Say, hey, I promise I'm going to do a, be a good employee. I'm not going to prepare to be a good employee. I'm not going to work hard, but I promise it. Um, the Super Bowl is coming up next week. The Rams, what if they said, hey, we're not going to practice for the next two weeks. We just promise we're going to win. Okay, We promise. We're not going to practice. We're not going to prepare for the team. We just know we promise we're going to win. Imagine if, if I came up here and said, hey, um, I promise you this is going to be a good sermon. I haven't thought about it at all. I haven't prepared it at all. I haven't practiced my sermon at all, but I promise you this will be a good sermon. You'd be like, that doesn't work. You have to prepare and you have to promise. You have to prepare and you have to practice it. This, I'm going to say a statement that You're not going to believe how smart this statement is. Some of you don't think I'm that smart of a guy. Listen to this statement. Write this down. Okay, ready? If you don't prepare, you're not prepared. Isn't that just revolutionary? If you don't prepare, you're not prepared. Make sense? I know I'm a smart guy. If you don't prepare, you're not prepared. We know this in every other way. But for our, our relationships, for some reason we think this doesn't apply. For some reason, we think that the promise is more important than preparing for the relationship, for preparing to meet the person you're eventually going to marry, for, for preparing for that, and then in the marriage, practicing to be a better husband or a better wife. The, the, the promise is all that matters. For some reason, we believe this myth that's simply not true. So we get into a relationship without any preparation, without any practice, and we just think, hey, I said I do, so I promised. Just because you say I do doesn't make you capable. It makes you accountable, but it doesn't make you capable. It's a promise myth. A promise doesn't replace preparation or practice. And here's what's fascinating. With both of these myths, the right person or the promise, we are fed this all the time. In your reality shows that you watch, on Instagram, on the reels that you watch, it's constantly pushing this idea that eventually the right person is going to make everything right, and you just need to make a promise. Don't worry about how you live your life single. Don't worry what you do in your marriage. Just make a promise. It's all going to work out. We are constantly pushed both of these myths. But the message of Jesus doesn't push this. The message of Jesus actually says the opposite of these myths. That if you fully buy in to the message of Jesus and the way Jesus has designed us to live, we model our life after him, I truly believe that you will be better at all of your relationships, but especially your relationship with your spouse or future spouse or the person you're dating, the person you're in a romantic relationship with. In John chapter 15, Jesus is close to the end of his ministry. Um, He has not gone on the cross yet. He has done that stuff, but he's talking to his disciples in John chapter 15, and he gives a parable, which is an analogy, and sometimes he gives a story and a parable, and he doesn't explain it. He just says, hey, here's this story. Go check it out. There's a farmer with a bunch of seeds. Figure that out. This one, he tells a parable, and then he explains it. He says, here's, here's what it means. And he gives a complete, you, ought, you fully understand what he's saying by the end of it. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Jesus is trying to show us something here, that our life bears fruit. It shows something. It shows who we are connected to. It shows who our source is. And if you bear the proper fruit, Jesus tells us that this is how you bear the proper fruit. Verse four, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Stay connected to me, he's saying, because you cannot bear fruit, the right fruit, Unless you're plugged in with me. Then Jesus makes it crystal clear in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you catch the promise that's in this verse Jesus gives us? If you remain in me, if I stay your source, you will bear much fruit. That's a promise that the longer you remain in the source, your life will show how you act. The fruit you show, the way you treat other people, the way you live, it will show it the longer you remain in him. But there's another promise. If you don't remain in him, if you don't stay connected to the source, if you don't stay plugged in, if you don't allow him to be your source, you can do nothing. You can't produce the right fruit without being connected to the right source. You might read this and think, okay, well, when you say fruit, we talk about when it says fruit, and Jesus tells us the answer. In verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Remain, that that same word that he uses in verse 1, remain in the vine. That same word talking about the branch of the vine says, remain in my love. How do we remain in my love? He tells us in verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and have remained in His love. So then you might see that and go, oh, here it is. Here's the obedience part of it. Here's the rules we have to follow. Here's the commands. The people listening might be hearing this and go, okay, here we go, Jesus. You're going to tell us all the things that we have to do, all the ways we have to live now. And, and these people, they, if they know the history of, of the Torah and they know the history of, of, of uh, Israel, they, they know that there's these Ten Commandments that they have to live by. But not only the Ten Commandments, there's over 600 laws that were created to help keep the Ten Commandments. So they're probably thinking, okay. Here comes the commands. Here's all the things we have to do to live, to live by. If we want to love, here's how we have to do it. Here's, we want to remain in his love. Here's what we need to do. So Jesus, tell us what we got to do. Jesus says this in verse 12. My command, one command. Remember, these are people that had over 600 laws they had to follow. Nope, one. My one command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's it. You love other people the way I have loved you. This is a specific kind of love. This is a focused kind of love. Because of the, of the relationship that we have with Jesus, because of the model of love that Jesus gave us, this is how we are to love. And Jesus' audience at the time, they don't fully understand this. They can't. They don't know what's coming. They can't fully get it yet. They can't fully get the kind of love Jesus was about to demonstrate. And in fact, in verse 13, Jesus even kind of tells them, he says this in verse 13, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. The disciples hear this, and they're thinking this is a metaphor. But this isn't a metaphor. We know that. This is a spoiler. This is what's about to happen. This is what Jesus is about to do. Jesus would show what real love actually looks like by willingly allowing himself to be sacrificed, to be crucified, by allowing Rome to crucify him. No one forced Jesus to be crucified. He allowed himself, he gave up himself willingly, Because he loved. He willingly laid down his life. Love one another just as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Sacrificially. Jesus gave up his rights and he gave up his life for you. That is the love that we are called to show. That is the love. A love that sacrifices our needs and our desires for the betterment of everyone else. A love that forgives no matter what. A love that works to lift others up no matter what. What does remaining in Christ look like? Love others like Jesus loved you. But you know why it's hard to apply this one command into our romantic relationships? Because we tend to believe the myths. The right person myth and the promise myth. See, the right person for me will make it right for me and even make me right. You don't have to show sacrificial love with the right person myth because that right person is going to make everything right. So you don't have to do anything about it. It's about you. You're going to, you'll be taken care of. We believe that myth so we don't live out our sacrificial love. And a promise is all I need. I don't need to prepare. I don't need to practice. I don't need to do any work. This should come easy. It's just a promise. You, need to sacri- you don't need to show sacrificial love for a promise. You can just promise it. You can just say, yeah, hey, I do. Yeah, sickness and health. You just promise, and it's going to work out. When we allow these two myths to inform our decisions in our relationships, it pushes out the command God gave us to show sacrificial, others-first love. That's why if you want love with no regrets, love with no regrets requires sacrificial love. You need to decide to live out love by putting the other person first, by sacrificing what you want and what you need for the betterment of the other. At every wedding I do, um, I always talk about love. And you'd be like, okay, so you're about, it's, a, it's a wedding. Of course you talk about love. But here's what I say when I, when I talk about love. At every wedding I do, I say this almost every time. I say that the wedding day is you expressing your love. It's you saying your vows. It's you doing the, the whole thing. You're, you're making a covenant on your God. You're going to throw a party. It's, it's you expressing your love. But the way you prove your love is what you do every day after that. It's the work that you put in. A lot of times we just want that dream wedding, dream time we can celebrate love, and then after that we're like, I we'll just figure it out. We put all this preparation into one day, all this money into that one day, and then we don't prepare at all for the actual marriage, and we think, all right, I made this promise, I'm good to go, I married that right person. When love, sacrificial love, says, no, I am going to do the work to put your needs ahead of mine. That's what it says. You show your love every day by putting the other person's needs over yours. By choosing to put their needs and their desires over your own. By sacrificing for the other. That's what Jesus did. That is what sacrificial love is. So if you're here and, and you're single, maybe you've just been single and you're hoping to get married one day, maybe you're, you're newly single. If you're here and you're single, start preparing for whatever comes next by practicing sacrificial love now. Create healthy habits now so when you find that person, you can practice sacrificial love. Create those healthy habits. Stay pure now. Grow in your walk with God now. Be confident in who you are so that you can remember that you don't need that person to make you right, that you understand because of your relationship with God that you are right because of his sacrifice. So I don't need to find that person. I hope I do one day. That would be great. But I'm good now because I understand that the God of the universe loves me, takes care of me. So I'm going to practice sacrificial love to everyone I see, to everyone I interact with, to my family, to my friends. So if one day I do meet that person that I can spend the rest of my life with, that I'm going to know how to practice sacrificial love with them. That's what you should start applying now. If you're here and you're married, you need to start applying sacrificial love right now. And I'm going to talk to the, the marriages in here that you know that are struggling. So I know there are those relationships here. Maybe you're here and you're not, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. You should still practice this because it will keep you that way. But maybe you're here like we're, we're struggling. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Starting today, show app. Oh, sacrificial love in your marriages every day. And I don't mean that just like, yeah, just like love. No, no, no. Whichever way your spouse needs to be loved, you show it every day. You be the first to apologize every day. You do whatever you can to make the relationship good every day. And here's what I even say: if you're in a marriage that's like, man, we are struggling, if you do this for two months, it will radically change your relationships. I promise you. And if you're here and and especially if you both of you are here, I'm really saying this to the guys. Be the spiritual leader of your household. Do what you're called to do and be the man. Step up and do it. Don't wait for them. You do it. If your husband's not here, then I'm talking to you. Listen, we need it every day because it's easy to do sacrificial love every once in a while. It's easy to do it one week. It's easy to do it for two weeks. And you know what? If you start doing it one week, your, your spouse is going to be like, yeah, 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 I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah, thanks for making dinner that one time. Yeah, thanks for cleaning up after me that one time. Yeah, thanks for picking up the kids that one time. That's great. But I'll see you in two weeks when you go back to your old habits and we go back to fighting about everything. No, no, do it for one week, then the next week, and then by a month, even if your spouse is like, I, I wasn't sure about this before, but I'm starting to see something a little different. If you do that for two months, it can radically change your relationship. Sacrificial love. If you want to love with no regrets, you must love how Jesus commanded us to love. And you might think, how can I possibly continually do that? How can I love sacrificially? Not by trying harder, not by doing more, but by remaining, by abiding, by resting not in your strength, but in his, by remaining in the vine. When you do that, Jesus promised you, when you remain, the fruit will show. If you don't remain, you can do nothing. You might be here and be like, I don't think I can do that. Maybe you need to go back to remaining in the source. No one regrets sacrificial love. But you can only have sacrificial love by modeling your life after Christ's example. So instead of thinking of all the things that that person needs to do, and if they did it, then our relationship would be different. Instead of thinking of all the ways that they need to change, we decide today that we're going to model our life after Jesus by laying down our rights and our life for the betterment of others to love sacrificially. Just like He came and laid down His rights to love you by sacrificing Himself. So what we're going to do a mass and worship team to come on up. We're going to recognize this sacrificial love by partaking in communion together. There's no better way for me to think about sacrificial love, about what Christ did for you, laying his life down than by, by recognizing it through communion. Some things that you need to know if you're new here. You don't have to be an owner of this church. You don't have to even call this church your church home in order to take communion. We have an open invitation. Anyone is allowed to take it. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. That you say, I, I am living, I repent, I have given my life to Christ. If you haven't done that and you want to, this can be your opportunity to do that. So I want you to take this time, take this moment, as the song plays, to go to the back, take your elements. We're going to sit back down. We're going to take it together. But this is a way for us to remember the sacrificial love that Christ gave us so that we can now apply it into whatever relationship we want to apply it to, to into the relationship, whether it's your romantic relationships or not. So as the song is going, I invite you, we'll start in the front, go right to the back. The host team is ready for you. Take your elements. You can come back. You can worship. You can sit. You can stand. You can do whatever you want. But we're going to take it together we'll we'll practice the sacrificial love together. Let's do that together.